0: Good
1: afternoon, it's the fourth Friday of the month, and that means it's time for Literary Ashland, right here on KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland, Oregon, and 94.1 FM in Medford, Oregon. I'm Michael Neiman, And I'm Ed Battistella. And we have a guest today. Why don't you introduce her, Ed?
2: our, Our special guest is Jennifer Sherman Roberts. She's a writer, a writing teacher, the president of the Josephine County Public Library Board, she has a Ph.D. in early modern literature from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities, as well as degrees from Villanova University and the University of California Berkeley. So, bi-coastal. Um, Indeed.
1: Welcome, Jennifer. So,
2: welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah, it's a treat. That's
2: that's and, wonderful. and I was going to ask, um, you're you're working on a historical novel based on the, the life of Margaret Cavendish, the, the Duchess of Newcastle, um, so a, a 17th century writer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, how you got interested in
0: it? What? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been a little bit obsessed with Margaret Cavendish um, ever since my dissertation, these many years ago, um, where I learned about her. She, um, 17th century, um, it, and she was sort of a, a daughter of an up and coming family um and was her family was a royal, was with royalists during the uh English civil war and she was sent into um sort of serve uh, queen henrietta Mar- maria during um Their time of exile in Oxford, and then she was sent with her to France, and just had kind of where she met her husband um, William Cavendish, the Duke of Newcastle, and just had sort of a fascinating life. Also had an absolutely fascinating interior life. Um, She she is a really fascinating personality. She um, intensely shy. Um, had a very hard time talking to people, but also loved to sort of be a spectacle and would sort of dress in in, in sort of extravagant ways in order to draw attention to herself. One time went to uh, the premiere of one of her husband's uh, plays with her breasts exposed and her nipples tinted red so that everybody would look at her. I mean, just, oh, wow. just sort of, it, it's something that you don't really, so it's just this sort of interesting dichotomy. It's like 2020-ish, yes. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, But also um, what really fascinated me was her mind. And so um, she was uh, drawn to questions of natural philosophy, what we would now call science and really fascinated with things like, you know, like what we would now call atomic particles and how matter is made and, and does matter have spirit? And she would have, um, Uh, sort of conversations with people all across the European continent and in England discussing these questions. Um, When she came back to England, um, she became the first woman to be allowed admittance into the Royal Society as a guest, not as a member, but as a guest. So she was able to go to the Royal Society of Science and look at the experiments and, um, all of that kind of stuff. And she is the first woman to have published under her own name in England. Um, and so she's sort of, she's just a fascinating person. And so I I became interested in her and then I decided to try to write this novel about her and, um, what I quickly learned and, uh, maybe you guys can kind of, uh, gel with this is that there's a very big difference between being fascinated by somebody and writing a good (laughs) novel about them (laughs) and so I wrote this novel and um and uh, you know a a friend of mine calls novel writing you know the first it was my first pancake right when you get the batch going it's your first pancake and then you learn how and so I sent it out and it was um it needs a lot of work still. And so I wasn't quite sure how to do that. So I found myself having to go back to the drawing board and learn how to not just try to tell people why I'm fascinated by somebody, but learn how to tell a story. And mm-hmm. so um, I started a second novel since, since that um, update that you gave and, and that one's sitting there until I can figure out how to turn it into a good story that people want to read, not just because I think she's cool. You know, so anyway, that's a, that's the long answer to your short question. <laughs> and,
2: and Michael's probably been in this situation, too, where where you sort of go down a rabbit hole and get so fascinated with uh, things that you, you yeah. know, I, mean, I always find myself sort of overtelling the parts that I'm most interested in and then and then mm. having to go back and say, "Well, nobody else cares about that." So,
0: yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. I need to
2: throw in a car chase here or a murder or something. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a
0: second, that's what I do. Right? <laughs> in my case, it was a murder. Uh, I threw in a murder. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: there, there's yeah. a writer. There's a writer from uh, Medford, um, April Henry, who's um, lives up in Portland now and has written a, a lot of young adult novels. And she came down here one time and said. The, the key is to get somebody murdered in the first six pages.
0: That's mm-hmm. what I did in my second novel. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, 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 well, first six pages. <laughs> yes, <you> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: great. Uh, yeah. Writing, writing about a person, even a, especially a real person of the 17th century, also takes a lot of research. <laughs> and how do you go about doing that? Uh, because we're talking way back when.
0: Right, right. Um, fortunately for me, uh, the life of Margaret Cavendish has been pretty well um, discussed, and um, there are some excellent, excellent biographies out there. Um, I went to a conference um, about Margaret Cavendish, and and so which, which is a little bit more theoretical. Um, it had a lot more to do with her science and her natural philosophy. But for me, again, that was sort of the fascinating part about her was not just the biographical details, but the life of her mind. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of I kind of just got drawn into the whole thing. I I went to England and I saw her um, her statuary in in Westminster Abbey. Um, I even asked the uh, one of the guards if I could stand up on one of the railings because her. their, her tomb was kind of you know, horizontal. So I wanted to get a good picture this way. So he was kind of holding me up there so I could get a good <laughs> picture of her. And um, <laughs> I went to her childhood home um, in Colchester and um, you know, she just became my gal. She was my girl. And, um, and so that was in addition to the reading and all of that, um, there was just this really kind of visceral connection, I think, that a lot of people get with um, their research subjects and also the characters of their of their novels. I think when it's a real person, that connection is somehow more startling, like um, you don't expect it at all. And so and, and then you find out details and the person grows and lives inside you a little bit more when they're. I think when they're fictional characters, it's it's such a more theoretical connection and you've created that person so they no longer really can surprise you in quite the same ways. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was kind of how I, I got to kind of know Margaret. <laughs> she was often called to, because she was so eccentric, Mad Madge. <laughs> and so I—that was much other I way that I would kind of that. But then that also becomes a huge weight when they are—they've been a, You feel like this huge responsibility to portray them correctly, and especially if they're involved in fictional situations, what would they have done? And then there's the whole ethics of writing fictionally about a historical subject. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. history versus fiction and fictionalizing history and all of that. Um, and so I think when you become that connected to a, a, person, a, a person, a a historical figure, um, the weight of it, I think, can really hamper the creativity. And, um, it's
2: I, I, w- the- I would be worried that I'm gonna miss I have to keep researching because there might be some crucial thing that I'm going to miss. And uh, and, you know, you're
1: (laughs) (laughs) definitely. And and somehow the, the the work that you do in terms of your research almost gets in the way because it is just so overwhelming.
0: Exactly. And, and at some point you can't just be writing another biography unless you say I'm writing a biography, you know, at some point you have to say, I'm taking this into a a world of imagination. And um, so, yeah, there's just, it's a real, like, almost an ethical debate, constant ethical fight within yourself as your, as your, which is why my second novel is in all fictional characters, characters. I took it easy on myself, I said. Is that also
2: historical or?
0: It is, and it's in the same time period. Actually, sure. it's a 17th century England. But it, um, I became really interested. Uh, a lot of this stuff is sort of based on research I'm doing, and I became really interested in historical recipes
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and medical um, for met for medicine for cosmetics for food for preserving um, and did a lot of primary research with recipes and got kind of interested in cunning women who were women who did medical kind of mm-hmm. sort of magical recipes, and so. Um, this novel is about a cunning woman in the 17th century, and uh, I feel perfectly comfortable fictionalizing her. <laughs> so,
2: yeah. yeah. And I, I noticed that you did some... Um, you were involved with something called the Recipe Project. Um, so that's a good segue. and Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the historical mm-hmm. recipes. I always try and bring a couple of them into the history of English, um, and it, it, it always... I I'll give an extra credit question where they have to translate something and figure
0: out <laughs> Oh yeah and the handwriting. Oh my lord the handwriting is so the the is so, so hard. Um so the recipes project is um an academic blog um and it um is uh sort of people interested in the genre of recipes and cooking from England to China to, you know, Mesopotamia, everywhere, you know, across time and space. (laughs) You know, there's, there are blog posts from, from all over about um, how recipes operate um, and how they are, uh, how central they are to sort of the ways that we build community and function in, in, in sort of domestic spaces. And I think the sort of guiding principle is that because they are such a domestic, thing we've ignored them to our detriment um, because they they really were circulated as a form of knowledge Mm -hmm. and um, experience that was very very valuable and so um, just looking at the genre of recipes is really interesting in my case in the 17th century um, it it intersected with my interest in the history of medicine and science um, in that a lot of the recipes had to do with humoral theory and and medicine. Um, And so sort of teasing out the logic that's there that doesn't sometimes always seem very logical. (laughs) So for instance, I have a blog post about um, a recipe for using pigeon dung for an eye wash you know, if you get pink eye, but it, you know, and to us, to modern sensibilities, that seems well. I mean, yeah, I so mean, it seems seems like disgusting, cold. kind of yeah. ick, and yeah, exactly. um But the idea was that pigeons, uh, you know, had excessive uh, sort of represented had excess um, humors that would counterbalance what was going on with the mm-hmm. eyes, and there is an internal logic. In those um, recipes and sort of pulling that out, I think it, it just gives a, a really interesting glimpse into that world. Um, and and there's some really fascinating um, discussions about recipes uh, being used as cultural capital and being used to that. This is not work that I've done, but that other people have done. Um, used to like make connections socially and you know, friendships and recipes. And I think we can kind of chart that. It's something I, some work I did with the Oregon humanities too, um, and ways that we use them to kind of create communities uh, in, in, in society. Some really fascinating work being done with that. And, yeah. and I see that
2: Oregon humanities is doing a special food issue coming up. So,
0: yeah. Know. Yeah, they are. They are. And, and, um, a couple of years ago, I did a conversation project with Oregon humanities and, and people were invited to bring their recipes and to talk. And what really, I just loved that. I just loved that whole experience because people would bring, you know, grandma's recipes for, you know, um, I don't know, hot dish. <laughs> yeah, but it was written out in her handwriting. There was something about the physicality of that—that that material object—and and people would just open up, and it was really, it it, it really is a a wedge into your own uh, experiences and and a way to kind of think about them in new ways. So yeah. yeah. Okay
1: uh in in case you're just tuning in you are listening to literary Ashland right here on KSKQ 89.5 FM in Ashland Oregon our guest today is Jennifer Sherman Roberts writer and teacher and we're talking about literary things in the 17th century and recipes
2: and and I was going to ask Michael have you ever um tried to make a 17th century cake recipe as i know you uh, he, he does a cake a week
1: <laughs> no, no, but I, I'm reminded when, when I used to teach the cocoa and chocolate class, uh, the old the old recipes for drinking chocolate that sort of were adapted from the old Aztec recipes, and then morphed into various recipes in France and Italy, uh, and, and and ultimately in England. At one point, apparently, chocolate houses were more widespread than coffee or tea houses. Uh, and, and again, those were also status markers because cocoa was expensive and only for the elites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And there's actually uh, somebody who did, I, I can't remember the name of the blog post, but on the recipes project, somebody who did, who made that connection between um, sort of chocolate mm-hmm. and colonialism in the 17th yeah. century. And mm-hmm. and so there were some interesting things there too. Um, but you have to, there's a, a blog called Cooking the Archives. And um, I, I, I wish I could remember who did it. Um, and she will go into and find 17, mostly seventeenth and sixteenth century recipes and cook them up and find okay. modern modern re- equivalents. And there's a, um, a library, the Wellcome Library in li- in London, and uh, at free to anybody globally. You can go on and you can access you can access the digitized collections. so you can be actually reading the the paleography, everything of the recipe collection itself, and you can recreate any recipe that you want. It's really cool. I, 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 with my daughters, I made a hedge, hedgehog pudding. Um, <laughs> it was a pudding that was, and then you used almonds to make it look like mm-hmm. a hedgehog. Yes. Because <laughs> <Nice. laughs> I saw this recipe, I was like, wait, hedgehog, <laughs> wait, wait, what? <laughs> you know? um, and it was really, it was, mm-hmm. it was really fascinating to kind of do that with my kids. Yeah, it was really neat. Yeah. Yeah. You
1: you mentioned that you had done all this research into the history of medicine and so forth. So, did you get any insights about plagues?
0: Oh, pandemics? my gosh. Yes. <laughs> um, so my my research was in sort of anatomy and and hearing. And uh, so I'm I was in the English department. So I, my connection was between hearing and sort of play. Uh, plays, drama, and poetry, and how that worked with the, the mm-hmm. physical body. Um, but plagues are uh, sort of fascinating right now, too, right? And I just saw, um, I just uh, watched um, a conversation, an online conversation between some scholars about plagues and smells. And and that was a really fascinating kind of connection there. And recipes for pomanders, and um, you know the plague mask was always a way to like put something that smelled good at the at the top, so that you could get because the miasma of the plague could not get through. And then it and then something about the smells would kind of counteract that that. Foul miasma, as, they, as it was called, and so some really fascinating stuff with the plague. I've in, seen
2: some in of those of, mosques in the, uh, in the shops in Ashland they actually have some um, historical. Well, I don't know if they're original, but they're um,
0: yeah, yeah. The, they they look very similar, yeah, with that bird beak kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I always hang one up on my wall at Halloween because they're the <laughs> creepiest. <laughs> Creepiest things you've ever seen. No, I
2: hear people are putting you know snacks in their masks. <laughs> there you go. I think that's actually a really good idea. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it would work for teaching, <laughs> maybe maybe for teaching in the fall. You know, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, so so I, how? how well, go yeah, go for it,
0: Well,
2: I was going to ask you. Um, you you are, you are teaching um, teaching writing. To undergraduates at, at SOU and how has teaching writing sort of affected you as a
0: writer? Um, oh wow that's a great question. Um, or vice def- versa. What's that? Or vice versa. Yeah <laughs> I, I definitely teach writing having now done lots of different kinds of writing as, as working in nonprofits and working um, as a freelance writer and then especially doing the creative stuff and and um, I find that I am much less willing to put student writing in a box. And um, what I've found working with students is that there's a, there's just so much anxiety. Oh, you guys, it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? Uh, there's so much anxiety surrounding writing. And... Um, so I try to be really explicit at the beginning of any quarter in saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm teaching you in this situation, this box of of being in, in a university or in a classroom. So I'm to teach you this kind of writing, but constantly making sure that they know that that is not the only kind of writing. It may not be the kind of writing that they enjoy. It may not be the kind of writing that they're good at. I'm just showing them how to work within whatever system there might be and talking about audience and purpose and all of that kind of stuff. And really trying to work past the anxiety and getting back to some sort of joy, you know, that, that comes with writing. And, um, so, and I find that for me, my anxiety worked the other way around. So like, um, I, I used to be really confident in my academic writing and my very kind of, you know, putting on the academic face and the idea of writing something uh, fictional was like peeling my skin apart and showing (laughs) everybody what was inside of me, you know, (laughs) like the, uh, the, the being that vulnerable and, and open to um, critique scared the hell out of me. And um, I, there's just something about, you know, living life that gets you with a tougher skin. And so eventually I was able to do it. But my, my anxiety definitely worked the other way around. I could do an academic paper, no problem. But I know for some folks, they're, they're very comfortable with creative writing. And, and it's the academic stuff where they're being judged by certain kinds of really, in some ways, um, sort of uh, arbitrary standards or what may seem like it to them, that is the anxiety for them. So that, I think that kind of, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no.
2: I I, I often tell students that, um, you know, these academic papers are a, it's an academic trick that you have to demonstrate some mastery of certain skills. And uh, that's kind of all it is.
0: Yeah. And a conversation like, okay, we're going to talk this way through footnotes. (laughs) You know, I'm going to show you what I'm, but it, You know, again, the way we decide to do those things is pretty, is is relatively arbitrary, but it's kind of some of the hoops that you have to have to jump through and some have real purpose that, that some, Mm -hmm. basically everything changes too. I, you're trying to make sure that as you, as you point out so eloquently, Ed, everything in language changes. So, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. How did you get involved with the Josephine County Library Board, which is another part of your presence in the community? Here?
0: Yeah, and I should, I should make a correction, actually. So um, I think uh, I, I'm no longer president of the Josephine County Library Board. So um, that was a, a year or two ago, so I should take that off my biography. Um, and But the the library in Josephine County is one of those highlights of my life that when I'm looking back, I'll be like, Oh God, it just makes me so happy that this happened. It was, it was a terrible situation in the beginning. Um, Jackson County and Josephine County went through similar things in about 2007 mm-hmm. where our libraries were closed due to lack of funding. Um, and so uh, my my personal story is that I was, we were invited to sort of the election night thing where you find out the results. And my husband and I went and we took our two daughters who were five and seven at the time. And we got the results, and we were shocked. we had no idea and um and so then i I wasn't really thinking about my kids to be honest. I was kind of trying to find out what was going on and then I turned around and my my seven year old daughter was just bawling, and i didn't know she cared i didn't know she really was focused on that yet, and she was falling and I, I said I had to make a promise to her at that point that we would get the library back and so so uh, you know worked really hard um, as a nonprofit and then we opened the libraries as a nonprofit with uh, grants and donations and then a couple years ago we put a library district on the ballot and it passed and the library now has its own Funding, dedicated source of funding in the community, you know, the, it, which is especially now during this time of shutdown, a huge mm-hmm. blessing. Um, and it's it just is it just makes me so happy. It's it's a wonderful organization filled with people who are doing what they're doing for all the right reasons um, for for learning and access to. The, Culture and opportunity and all of that kind of stuff, so it's it's a wonderful situation, yeah
2: and I know we're sort of closing in on the end of our time, but as part of that um, you you had an opportunity to have dinner with Ursula Kayla Gwynn. and I think okay. both Michael and I are really jealous, so can you tell us so? <laughs>
0: Again, that's one of those things where I'll look back and I'll be like, oh my God, I got to do that. So my favorite story, so she came um, as a favor to her friend, uh, Roger Dorban. She came and gave a talk for the library, for Justin oh. Community Library. And I, I got to do the, the, I got to be the mediator. And um, my favorite, should I just tell you my favorite story? Cause I think it's so encapsulated. So, well, well, two stories. So first I talked to her husband who just went, just waxed poetic about how much he and Ursula loved their children. And it just was so touching to me. He just kept talking about his kids. I thought that was so sweet. The second part was when we were talking about signing books. And she said, it's so weird to me that people want my signature. I mean, I've just given them several thousand words. And they just want my name. I don't understand it. And my husband, bless his heart, he goes, <laughs> he goes well, you know, she said, maybe they just want something material and physical. And my husband goes, well, why don't you just lick it? <laughs> just lick the book. <laughs> and I kind of was like oh boy and um and so she she died she thought that was the funniest thing and so we're leaving for the night and we're on and and she gave me a hug and after she left I was like my god Ursula Kayla Quinn hugged me I was fangirling and um and then my she turns to my husband and I can't do this over a radio she goes (laughs) 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 and she gave him a little air lick (laughs) <laughs> it was the, I like it was the best thing ever <laughs> so and I told I, later that night I told my husband I don't think I've ever loved you more <laughs> <laughs> so and, and she was just delightful and of course brilliant and uh, and absolutely loved libraries like really in a deep and, and abiding way an inspiring way that's
1: wonderful that's a wonderful story yes well that brings us to the end of our show thank you so much for joining us today Uh, jennifer it's been a lovely interview yes thank you so much for the chance and uh, thanks to our listeners we'll be back next month with another edition of literary ashland and until then good words to everyone goodbye see you next month